Are you a real estate investor looking to elevate your income, freedom, and lifestyle? If so, optimize your daily performance by downloading our free guide, Raising the Bar, Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits at ElevatePod.com. In this guide, created by yours truly, you'll learn why you do what you do, how to easily institute cues in your environment to trigger desired behavior, directly applicable steps to create a fulfilling future, and much more. Get your free copy now at ElevatePod.com and kickstart your new habits today. Your future self will thank you. Welcome to Elevate the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting with, I call him honestly, the legendary Mark Hamilton of Hamilton Zands. Wow. This is a legendary real estate investor. This conversation, you're going to learn about going from a duplex in the 80s to 25,000 apartment units and other asset classes as well. In the course of several decades, you're gonna learn about the fever, having a fever for real estate and standing the variability, loving and trusting the work, accepting the reality and being and living in this playground of real estate investing and treating it as a playground rather than this burden and what that can do. I mean, what it can do for you. We're going to talk about doing big things, doing massive things. And I think that today this story is about you plugging into your own story because you know what? Anything is possible for you. And you're going to learn so much in this podcast today. I'm so excited about this. Elevate podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I'm a professional real estate investor and high-performance coach. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar today. You're going to learn about raising the bar higher, faster, quicker, with more courage, being more bold, being bolder. I mean, this is like stepping into your dreams today. Mark couldn't have been more generous with his time. He didn't have to do this. He doesn't need to do this, but he's giving back. And so I just want to encourage you to buckle up because today's podcast is so good. Uh, if you haven't done so already, pay the fee. We ask you to pay the fee, and that is to pay it forward and share this episode with someone else. Just go ahead and grab the link, send in a text message, an email, post it on social media, or even just mention Elevate Podcast with Tyler Chesser and this episode with Mark Hamilton. That's all we ask. We can only grow if you continue to spread the word. If you've done so already in the past, thank you so much. We ask you, you to do that again today for this episode. If it's your first time listening to Elevate, welcome. You are so important to us and you're just be ready. I mean, we're, we're pouring so much massive value into your cup today. So just be ready to receive that. And uh, we're so grateful for you. Please also give us a rating, review and subscribe or follow Elevate Podcast on wherever it is that you listen or watch podcasts. Those things are very important to us. It's very important for you also to be notified of the next episode because we are going to continue to bring massive value. Today's episode, oh my goodness, it could be worth everything. This could be a pivot point for your career. It could be a pivot point for your empire in real estate. So please, please, again, buckle up. I want to introduce you to Mark Hamilton, who has been a player in the national commercial real estate industry for more than 30 years. 
His main professional focus has been in locating value add properties and changing urban neighborhoods and then reworking them into higher quality buildings with higher incomes, improved tenant profiles and higher resale values. Prior to co-founding his own investment company in 2001, Hamilton Zands, Mark personally sponsored the acquisition, ownership and development of nearly 40 properties in the Bay Area. Alongside his partners, Tony Zanz and Hout Cooper, Mark has gained considerable experience in partnership formations and operations, project planning and implementation, asset management and management oversight, landlord tenant and rent control issues, risk management and zoning and building department matters. He is also a national thought leader in the 1031 exchange real estate tax policy, which, of course, we also talked about in today's episode. Before forming his own commercial brokerage and investment business in 1994, Mark worked in the San Francisco office of Marcus Millichap, subsequently co-founding Property Resource Group, Real Estate Brokerage and Quantum Land Company Development. He earned a BA with high honors in English literature from San Francisco State University and an MA in English and American literature from Brandeis University, which he attended as a university scholar and fellow. Without further ado, please enjoy this really game changing, this real estate gold conversation with Mark Hamilton. Mark Hamilton, welcome to Elevate. How are you? Great, Tyler. How are you? And thank you for having me on your program today. No, I'm doing really well. And I was just telling you uh, prior to getting started here that I appreciate you carving out time in your schedule to make, uh, you know, it's really time to giving back. I mean, obviously what you've done over the course of the past several decades in real estate and obviously in your life has been substantial. But thank you for carving out some time for us today. I'm happy to do it. Um, I always love a good conversation. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, thanks again. And, and so as we dive into this conversation, it's obviously going to be dynamic. Your experience has been dynamic. It's been substantial, uh, not only within real estate, but obviously as an investor overall and sort of your thought process is extremely valuable. But before we get there to connect you to the audience as a human being, if you were to describe yourself in the way that the people who know you best would describe you, what would they say about Mark Hamilton? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think I have a pretty open mind and, and, and a very active interest in, in, in any topic um, that, that people want to talk about. Um, I certainly enjoy uh, the dailiness job that I have uh, of the multifamily industry. It's different every hour. You're always striving to, to make something, right, to create something, um, a business structure, arrange financing. A, cap, a capital improvement plan, you know, you're always looking to shape things. So uh, uh, my wife, my wife and my kids might say I have a very short attention span. Um, that's probably true. Um, but having something that on the one hand is amorphous, but on the other hand, also lends itself to shape and structure and design um, is something that's always been um, very interesting for me. Um, and I love to go to work. You know, I love, I love the job that I have. It's, it's been, um, in many ways, it's been my salvation. I think about that open mind and the active interest in any topic being such a valuable foundation for long-term success in this space because of the fact that we have continually changing set of circumstances and you have to have a wide interest level to really connect the dots and, and to see those patterns. But does that resonate with you, Mark? It does. Um, and when you and I were chatting just a little bit a few minutes ago, quite frankly, I think awareness um, is more important than ideology in this business. I mean, you, I mean, the landscape, you know, the history of this industry is littered uh, with the carcasses of people who just had an ideology. It's very easy to have an ideology uh, and build something uh, and have it go haywire. 
Uh, so I think awareness and responsiveness is 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 essential. Um, and I, I tend to call the uh, multifamily business uh, a strength in numbers and a pain in numbers uh, hmm. business. And the pain in numbers is you've always got stuff to do. Um, you know, you're hopping from one thing that needs to be done to the next. Sometimes it's a, you know, it may be a minor crisis. Um, but the strength in numbers side of it is, uh, you know, on any on any apartment property that we have, uh, which is probably going to average between two and 300 units, um, you got 300 units there. Uh, and if you take good care of them and you meet the market and you take good care of your staff, uh, you know, just because you have uh, 10 vacancies, you know, 10 vacancies is not the end of the world. If you have uh, an office building or a retail center or, or something that may have a leasing challenge, uh, 10 vacancies could be the end of that deal. So I, I do tend to think of it as a strength in numbers and pain in numbers business. And if you can, uh, you know, tame the beast and figure out how to be proactive um, and have great people um, at all stations in the organization and, and, and at all stations for the asset, um, you're going to do fine. When I think about that awareness being greater than ideology, my fir the first thought that my mind goes to is when you think about politics, right? Politics impacts the landscape of our investments and it impacts, you know, our residents, it impacts our tenants, it impacts, you know, interest rates, it impacts, you know, the economics of what we're looking at. And so what you're saying is instead of being politically oriented, you know, or at least, you know, letting those ideologies drive your investment decisions, it's being aware and being agnostic, or maybe I'm putting some words in your mouth, but is that what well, you're I saying, think, Mark? I think you've got it spot on. And, um, you know, agnostic is a word that, that I frequently use. I think you have to be dispassionate. Um, you know, you have to love the work and love the people that you, that you work with. And I've, I've been, I've been fortunate, very much fortunate on both sides of that. Um, but, you know, having an ideology or a rigid dogma may not get you very far. Um, you know, you have to be on your toes in this business. You have to be responsive to lots of different conditions, um, in terms of, uh, you know, the facts on the ground at any piece of property, you know, 300 units is, is 300 front doorknobs is probably a thousand interior doorknobs. It's some, you know, some high number of toilets and sinks and one thing or another. Um, and so you really have to pay attention to that stuff. And, and you can't really dictate uh, to the facts on the ground. You have to steer them. Um, but if somebody wants to move, they got a right to move. Right. And just because, you know, you, you, you take a position, uh, the facts on the ground of the property might not support that. You also have to be tuned into things that are going on in, in the local metropolitan economy. And, and, and substantially, that's about jobs, but it might be about other things like rent control. Um, and then you have to pay attention to the capital market stuff. So, you know, you have to have, um, you have, to have a sensibility. Um, and if you're untrained, um, you can get hurt. Uh, so training is very important and, and understanding <laughs> various pieces and the various um, paths in the business uh, is very important. But, but again, I would say just, just having, you know, being dogmatic about it. Um, you know, there's plenty of people that, that create problems for themselves with, with their dogma um, because it gets up, it gets turned upside down uh, by the markets. 
I completely agree. And having the awareness of, well, wait a minute, my emotions are being played. And so having an awareness of, well, wait a minute, I'm getting swept up in dogma. So now let's take a step back and let's just be aware and make decisions without that dogma pushing us forward. But I think about training, you know, we're, we're currently the listeners are in training, right? We're, we're listening to this conversation. We're engaging in this conversation to train ourselves so that we don't get hurt so that we can capture opportunities so that we can take things to the next level and design the lifestyle that we want. And all the while, falling in love with this business like you've done over the past several decades. So let's Mark, if you if you would do this with me, I'd love to go back to the beginning when you really started to find deals in the Bay Area and either develop those, reposition those and so forth. But take us back to the beginning. When did you actually get started in the business and what did it look like from the very first start? Well, it's a it's a really it's a really good question. And I started in the business accidentally. Um when I graduated from college uh uh with a degree in English lit uh, I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school. Um, I also knew that I was going to have to save some money, you know, put some money away um, to, to have savings, you know, to have savings when I went. Um, and so I, I took the first job um, that I was offered. And, and indirectly, it came from the first uh, interview that I went to. That was an interview for something completely different. Um, it was an interview to be a teen counselor. Um, in Mayor Diane Feinstein's youth employment office. Wow. And I had a great interview, but um, I didn't get the job uh, because they were looking for people that had counseling backgrounds. But the, um, the fellow that I interviewed with had, had received a, a posting of a job at a commercial real estate firm downtown. Um, and so I went, I went that afternoon. I called, um, went that, I went out and bought myself a, a pair of slacks and a sport coat. Um, and went to the interview and got the job and started the next day. And so um, I had no background in finance or business administration or, or anything. Um, but I, uh, uh, I did my hitch there. It was a year. At the end of a year, I said my thanks. My Fairley Wells and was quite certain I was going out the door for the last time. Uh, and went to graduate school. And um, it was just not my cup of tea. Um, it was, it was, uh, I had taken 24 units my last semester in college. And so I thought graduate school might not be so hard. I had nine units, which was three classes and I'd never worked so hard in my entire life to meet the requirements of those nine units. <laughs> and so, um, I'm, I'm getting way off topic here, but my wife and I made, we weren't married at the time, but we made plans to, to travel and we wanted to go teach English in Japan and we both got jobs. And so I came back to the same commercial real estate firm once again, uh, just to sock away some money before going to Japan. And then we didn't go at, at the end of the day, we didn't go. And I was kind of stuck. And, and I I'd never thought of myself as being a salesperson or, or, you know, an investment manager or one thing or another. Um, but, but I stayed while I was figuring things out. And uh, as, as things came along, uh, my wife and I decided to buy a uh, very broken down duplex in San Francisco and renovate it. Um, and we did that. We worked our day jobs and, um, you know, nights and, and weekends, we were sanding floors and hanging cabinets and putting in countertops and um, texturing the walls and painting and doing all this kind of stuff. I just kind of fell in love with it. And uh, the fellow who was my boss at the time, uh, he paid attention. Uh, and he asked if he if he thought it was something we could do to make money. And I said, absolutely, because, you know, San Francisco was not overrun uh, with investment um, and jobs activity at that point in time. And he said, what, year what was are this, you doing? Mark? Pardon me. What year was, this was this? In the, this was in the 80s. OK. And um, 
Uh, I said, absolutely. He said, then what are you doing sitting at your desk? Go get us, go get us some deals. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to have, to have that, um, have that circumstance, be, be working for a fellow who was wide open, you know, was open-minded. And so we did just that. And um, it worked out so well that we became part, my wife and I became partners with another married couple who were doing the same thing. Um, and one thing led to another and we formed a small business and uh, kind of got uh, capsized um, in the in the early 90s because the early 90s, uh, the fallout from the savings and loan crisis, high energy prices, high interest rates, the whole thing made it very hard to, to, to buy real estate profitably. And so we just had to cope. And you know, I during the 90s, I did at least one deal every year, except two years. There were only two years that I didn't. Um, and, you know, I had spun out of the partnership at that point in time and was doing it more or less on my own um, interchangeably with other um, with other co-sponsors and, and raising capital from friends and family. And I was able to hang on to the part of the business that I really loved while I made you know, I, I worked to keep the lights on. My wife was running a management company, so she was holding up her end of it that way. And I, you know, I, I made my contribution by doing brokerage and, and I brokered anything that landed on my plate, whether it was a vacant lot or somebody who wanted to build affordable housing or self-storage um, or light industrial or apartments or somebody who wanted to buy or sell a home. I took any assignment that came in the door. And so, um, you know, I, I got through the 90s that way. And then in 2001, I met Tony Zanz um, and his background was much more institutional uh, than mine. He has an MBA from Wisconsin, which is a premier real estate school. Uh, well, it's a premier MBA school, but they have a concentration in real estate. And he was ready for a change. Um, and so we linked up. Um, and at that point in time, we were a company of three people, uh, myself and Tony and somebody else who, who had worked with me for uh, a better part of 10 years. Uh, the first deal we did was uh, was 16 units. It was a 16 unit apartment building in Oakland that we thought could could have a better day. Um, and so we just teamed up and, and downhill we went. And, you know, so from I, I may have had a portfolio of around three or four hundred units at that point. And I think Tony had a portfolio of 50 to 75 units. Um, and we've grown that portfolio just by staying really close to the work and kind of having a fever about it. Um, and we have almost 25,000 apartment units in the portfolio today. And at, uh, at Hamilton's Ends, we'll, we'll cross 65 employees this year. Uh, in our two commercial shops, we have probably 25 to 35 uh, employees. And in the management company, we have probably 800 employees. So it's, um, you know, I, I once uh, described uh, a particular transaction by saying I thought I was buying a boiled egg and it turned into a chicken farm. So, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's kind of what happened here. <laughs> well, I think it's amazing. And I really do think back to your story and connecting those dots from the very beginning of that duplex in San Francisco, all the way now to 25,000 units. And it's obviously remarkable. It's exciting. And I, I just, I, I can see your passion for the industry and you just have fallen so much in love with the space and obviously building your team, continuing to stay close to everything that's happening on the ground. And obviously I'm sure that's created so much of the success. I also think about, you know, like Dr. Jerry Buss, you know, the owner of the Los 
Los Angeles Lakers, who's now the late owner of the Los Angeles Lakers, who started with a 14 unit apartment complex in Los Angeles, which then grew to this massive portfolio with his business partner. They ultimately purchased the Chrysler building in New York City, which then traded that in addition to some cash and some other uh, consideration for the Los Angeles Lakers for, you know, call it $66 million in the 70s. And I just was like, wow. So like this whole trajectory, it's like almost see some similarities there. Uh, well, I mean, I appreciate the comparison. Uh, <laughs> I do think that it's about um, really kind of having a fever about it. And I knew that, that Jerry Buss and his business par- partner also bought a lot of four home, excuse me, foreclosed homes mm-hmm. um, in Arizona once upon a time. Um, and I, I guess I thought he was kind of just generally a re- uh, business entrepreneur, but I, I guess he really was a real estate guy. You know, if you really have a fever about it and you you can stand all of the variability, I mean the daily vary, the daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly variability, you're gonna give yourself a good chance. And uh, you know, in, in our in our office, I, I I tell people that, you know, my experience has taught me three things. Uh it's it's really well, maybe four. It's really about really committing to the work, really loving the work, being able to trust the work, being able to trust your engagement with the work, giving yourself over to it, right? And just accepting the reality of it and really kind of, uh, it's, it, it becomes, it, it can become more than a chore. It can become a playground. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I do think of, um, I do think of this, of this organization as my wellness center. Um, so you have to give yourself over to the work pretty fully. Uh, if you can do that and understand the work, that takes care of one thing. Run with great people, right? Run with great people, and and open your doors and open the open the checking accounts and open all of it so that everybody gets treated well, right? Um, everybody gets a fair shake. Uh, but run with great people and do what it takes to keep great people um, in your organization and in your world. Um, and then the last thing. Uh, this is the one that nobody's going to like, but the last thing is just put in, put in, put in, put in, put in, just keep committing the, the reasonable amounts of money to it than you can. Um, and that's where your nest egg or better is going to come from. It's going to come from that recommitment of capital. Uh, my wife once chastised me because I, I took a, I took out a credit card. Uh, I, I had a deal that I needed to, needed to do. And I, I just had to have money in it. Right. I was going to, I didn't want to go to the investors and say I wasn't putting any money in it. So I took out a credit card that had a cash for cash advance uh, feature to it. And I pulled out $5,000 and put $5,000 into a deal. And I didn't tell her. Um, and so every month I would, every day I would race to the race her to the mailbox so that I got the mail <laughs> first. And finally, one day she got the mail uh, before I did. And I had to explain it. Um, but she subsequently said, oh, so you can do whatever you want to invest in real estate, but I can't buy a couch. Um, <laughs> but but the, the idea was we needed to practice what we preach. Right. And that that five thousand dollar position is just, and it went off better than an Internet stock. I mean, it was only five grand, but I'd, I'd like to see how that benchmarked against Amazon or Microsoft or whatever, because it just kept going and going and going. But I do think it's about those three things. It's about loving the work, running with great people and putting in and putting in and putting in. And, you know, if there's a fourth thing, the fourth thing is you also got to figure out how you're going to pay your bills while you're doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you have a day job, don't quit the day job uh, because it may be a while before the living that you can make from this will, will really support you. 
So in 2001, you founded the company that you're obviously now talking about with 25,000 units, Hamilton Zans. And, you know, I would imagine that back in the 80s, you had no idea the level of scale that maybe your future held. But did you in 2001? None. None. No, absolutely not. Um, I knew that I that I liked what I was doing uh, and I knew that it fit well um, uh, with what my wife was doing. Uh, and I just really liked the work. And I, I knew that I wasn't going back into English lit. That train had sailed. Um, I, I wouldn't have known what else to do. Uh, and in a downtime, I did try to find a lifeboat. And thank God I couldn't find a lifeboat. I mean, this was my lifeboat. I had to go back and rebuild my lifeboat. Um, but uh, Tony, Tony told me years later that he thought we would just, that, and then just have that portfolio. Right, just get to a point where we could run the portfolio with a modest staff, and and our third partner, Kurt Hal Cooper, who came in in two thousand three or four, basically said the same thing. Um, and I just got to say, I'm I'm so thankful that, that we didn't meet either meet the goal for either one of those guys, um, because we've just been able to keep doing it, and it's it's the it's the dailiness of it, you know, having having a world that stays fresh, um, that we can spread the rewards around. Uh, that we can that we can do a lot of long term planning, which we have and build in succession and all the rest of it and build an organization that's going to go. Um, I, you know, I've, I'm not a big believer in goals. You know, uh, almost everybody in the business world believes you have to have goals. I like to have objectives. I like to have intentions. Um, I like to have things I, I want to accomplish. Uh, but the 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 opportunities and the circumstances come in the door every day. And I just want to make sure that we're doing the best we can to get the ones that, that make sense for us. And by doing that, we've grown from two units to 25,000 units. Are you not a big believer in goals because you think it, think it limits you perhaps? And maybe you go, you can go bigger as a result of having more intentions and objectives. Distracting. Um, mm-hmm. And I think of goals as being um, very, very conducive. Um, to somebody with an extrinsic mindset, you know, it's about accomplishing things and checking the box, checking them off. Um, I think my mindset's uh, more intrinsic or holistic. You know, I like the whole thing. Uh, I like the wholeness of things. And for me, uh, you know, just telling myself I'm going to do 25 push-ups every morning. Uh, for one thing, I would get bored really fast. Um, I mean, I lose interest. Um, but the other thing is I don't want to do it just to check off, you know, just to check it off the list. Um, you know, we never set out to have a portfolio of 25,000 units. If I, if I had, if we had set that objective early on, I probably would have quit. Right. Because it's just like, it's just like, really, we're doing it just to reach a number. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to do that. Um, you know, we have a really great shop here with great people. I think by and large, the, the mindset is holistic. Um, we certainly have people that are much more qualitative. Uh, Kurt Hal Cooper, who, believe it or not, is the new CEO of the organization. Um, I promoted myself up to co-chair with Tony, and we promoted Kurt to, to CEO. He's a little more quantitative. Uh, he's very analytical, uh, very much more structured in his thinking um, uh, than I am. And he's a planner. Um, I'm kind of a big picture thinking, thinker. He's a planner. Um, but goals have just, I mean, I just, I pretty much go all in on anything I'm going to do. So, so telling myself I have, a, I have to have a goal to win the race is, is kind of pointless because I'm going to mm-hmm. throw my guts into it anyways. Uh, and I don't want to be distracted by it. It almost feels like it's like limiting you because it just removes the creativity and the unknown. You almost enjoy it. almost seems like you enjoy the adventure and the unknown of everything. Well, Steve Jobs, um, you know, and, and he ended up, I mean, obviously doing phenomenally well. 
but he, you know, one of his um, one of his catchphrases is the journey is the reward, right? And when you're really good at something, like he was, and and in the right space, and you can have fabulous financial success, it seems like it's easier to be able to say that. But you know, he was a uh, he was a student at Reed College um, who dropped out and stayed on campus and used to walk around the campus barefoot and uh, stumbled into a calligraphy class one day and just loved the image on paper thing. Um, I'm quite certain he did it. You know, he did his work for the love of doing the work. Um, but I, I really do believe that that there's a there's an environment that I live and work in. And being in the environment, being in the place I get to work is is the reward. Um, and then the rest of it has come along. One of the things you talked about earlier was standing that variability. And, you know, every single day is there's ups and downs. And a lot of times as investors, we have this tendency of being just totally in the weeds, zoomed into that either challenge, you know, uh, triumph, opportunity, whatever it is. But over the long haul, it's about standing that variability, as you mentioned. One of the things that, you know, I look at and I think about your journey and your trajectory, you know, since the 80s to now, you've navigated several market cycles, right? And you talk about variability. Yes. Talk to me about any advice you might give yourself or your younger self in terms of navigating the market cycle, because you've had some challenging set of circumstances that you've been able to overcome. Yeah, I would probably say be bolder earlier um, and raise the bar higher earlier. Um, as we can see in our office, we had a lot more ability and a lot more firepower um, than we may have realized. Um you know, we don't use broker dealers. We don't raise money from third parties. We don't pay commissions to our staff. Uh, everything here is just done for the joy of doing the work. And I mean, I know that sounds really corny, but everybody here is on salary and bonus. And I, I think people would say that they get treated really well. Um, and so, we, you know, we've never really chased it that way. Um, can you prompt me with the question again, please? No problem. Just navigating the market cycle. Any advice that you might give okay. your younger so, self? Yeah, I would say raise the bar higher sooner. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, we missed out on, or I missed out on the RTC years. The RTC years was the, uh, the RTC, the Res Resolution Trust Corp was the organization that Congress put together to liquidate all the failed savings and loans um, in the late eighties and early nineties. And there were a lot of good deals to be had there. And, you know, we've never been fans of crazy leverage, you know, just, just make your eyes red, you know, leverage it so high. Um, but I think, you know, it would have been uh, worthwhile to be more aggressive um, earlier, raise capital, raise more capital earlier. Um, I've always just kind of stayed, you know, stayed to my daily work and paid attention and sought out opportunities um, and then gone after the opportunities uh, that fell to us. But we know how to create markets. Um, you know, we work even from the time when I was doing it in the 80s, we work a market hard. Uh, it was San Francisco first and then it became Oakland. But I, I just made a point of of, of um, uh, making sure that I was acquainted uh, with every broker um, in the Oakland market who might see a deal. Uh, I spent time with them. I called them on the phone. We had coffee. We had lunch. And all they had to do is say they had something. I was over there looking at it, right? Build the relationships. So I, I probably would, would say build build more relationships earlier um, and then be a little more aggressive. Um, and those are really the only things um, I would change. You know, it makes me think of where we're at right now. I mean, you're seeing rising interest rates. Obviously, inflation is running rampant. 
Um, there's a lot of hesitation in the marketplace. It almost what what it makes me think of when you say be bold sooner or raise the bar higher mm-hmm. sooner. It's like, OK, instead of hesitating, we can be bold. We can be courageous and move forward and believe in ourselves. Is that kind of what you're referring to somewhat, Mark? A little bit. Yeah. Um, and I would say be a little nervier um, in terms of what you're going after. Um, I mean, we've never gone into a marketplace um, you know, we started out, I started out in one market, San Francisco, and then moved to Oakland because San Francisco got too pricey. Um, but we, we've gone into, um, and, and we've left markets. We sold out of Spokane. We sold out of Albuquerque. We sold out of um, El Paso. But we've probably been in 30 markets. Um, and we're, we're good at that. We're good at getting into the markets, understanding the opportunity, understanding the drivers, building the relationships with the brokers. Um, so I would say probably do more of that sooner um, and be more aggressive um, in terms of getting out and telling the story, right? We know how to tell the story. As I said, we don't advertise, we don't pay commissions, we don't use broker dealers. Um, we have really strong relationships with people. And although we have approximately 1,500 investors, they've all come, they're either all people that we know or they've come from referral from, from people that we know. Uh, we run with uh, about 1,500 accredited uh, investors. We run with a small number of family offices. Historically, we've worked with 10 to 12 institutional partners. Um, and by, by just wearing it out and really making sure we understand the markets, we understand how we're going to execute, uh, we understand what the facts on the ground opportunities are and how we might get more opportunities. You know, we don't want to go to a place where we're going to get one deal, right? It just, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to be an operator there. Uh, but just by being a little more fully invested, if you will, more, more personally invested and having more investment in the strategy um, and the business operation, um, I mean, that's really what I would say in terms of uh, being bolder. And, you know, we didn't know that, that we could get into other markets and have them work out. We just went station by station one at a time. And as I, as I said, I think we've been in at least 30 markets. And I think today we're probably still in 27. And that it seems like your growth trajectory continues. You know, yes. it's like a few, what was it, a couple of months ago, I think you were at 23,000. You've already grown by 2,000 this year. It well, seems so, I mean, I think the truth of the matter is, Tyler, we're probably at about 23,5 or 23,8. Or, I mean, with what we have in contract, we'll probably get to 25, but I, we'll cross 25 this year. Uh, we might, we might get solidly in between 25 and 30 this year. And, um, you know, we've just we've we've had really good results. And I, I think it's also important to know when to take your chips off the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our industry, as, as I'm sure, you know, there's this thing called a 1031 exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been a practitioner of 1031 exchanges for, for 30 years. Uh, I have partnerships that go back to the early 90s that are still active. Um, wow. And have just rolled over and rolled over and rolled over. And so, you know, when you can hang a W on the wall. And um, and 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 harvest it and put the pro, uh, proceeds into a an exchange account and go out and find something else. Um, it, it creates a lot of opportunity. I mean, we've done literally uh, hundreds of exchanges, and uh, if you count uh, if you count all the individual investors who've invested with us, either in tenancy and common structures or 
Delaware statutory trust structures, the number of exchanges we've done gets way up in the thousands really fast. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor, then we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, a national real estate investment firm founded by myself and my business partner, Brian Flaherty. CF Capital's mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors like you maximize their returns by investing in high value multifamily communities. If you are looking for risk adjusted alternative investments in quality apartment communities are seeking tax optimized cash flow with appreciation upside without all the hassles of management, you might benefit from learning more about investing alongside our team. You're invited to reach out and learn more about how you can invest with us by visiting cfcapllc.com. We're also currently offering a free ebook called The Bottom Line. 10 ways to increase cash flow in an apartment complex. Whether you're a new or experienced investor, we're confident you'll find massive value in this resource. So go get your free copy today at cfcaploc.com. And now please enjoy the rest of the show. And, you know, I think about compounding interest being the most powerful force in the real estate world and in, in finance in general. But obviously what you're describing is sort of the compound interest of relationships, you know, investor relationships and offering those opportunities. When you think about 1031 exchanges, you know, it's taking those chips off the table when the time is appropriate, but it's putting the chips back into the next opportunity when that time is appropriate. Talk to me about navigating a 1031 because, you know, you've done it for so many years. Yes. It can be there. Can can be landmines. You know, when people do a 1031, Absolutely. a lot of times it's like, hey, paying the tax may be better than doing a bad deal. So talk to me no about question. how you navigate that. Well, and, and in fact, that's that's core ideology for us. Paying the tax is better than doing a bad deal. Um, but when you can get not only compounded growth, but defer the taxes on your compounded growth, it's very beneficial. Um, and so the long and the short of it is if you're going to do a 1031 exchange, there, there are a few different ways you can do it. Uh, I mean, depending on what you own, uh, you can go from a home or a duplex or a corner store or whatever small, you know, whatever smaller investment asset you might have, sell that and buy something that's similar, right? Um, and as long as you um, in, reinvest all or more than all of your equity and replace all or more than all of your financing, and you do it with uh, with an exchange accommodator and you follow the other, you know, you dot all your I's and cross your T's, you've completed an exchange. Um, and certainly many, many people do that. Um, uh, it, it, I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's commonplace and it's, it's also highly efficient. Um, there, another way to do it is to, to throw your lot in with some other people, right? And maybe it's friends and family and everybody's had a, had a piece of property that they've sold and they're all, they're all going to be investing at the same time. And then you can form uh, you can form a general partnership, um, which is a very, which is by the IRS it's it's deemed to be real estate ownership. It's not deemed to be uh, partnership shares. Uh, so you can form a general partnership, um, or you could do it in a tenant and common structure where, where you go in with three friends and everybody's on title, and at the top of the title it's going to say in as tenants in common with each other, right? And we we we've done we built a lot of our practice on the tenant common structure. I mean, we're not dealing with small sums. Once upon a time, we did, uh, but we're not dealing with small sums, and we know the tenant common structure very well. Uh, you can also do it. You can you can execute by selling your property, putting your funds with uh, an exchange accommodator or facilitator or intermediary, depending on someone's terminology, um, and then going into what's called a Delaware statutory trust. And in a Delaware statutory trust, um, everybody goes into one trust that that if you simply whiteboarded it 
and didn't put any terminology on it, it would look like everybody invested in a partnership. But it's not a partnership. It's a trust. And so because of that, uh, the IRS, it, it's, it's, it's tried and true, right? It's a, it's a strategy that the IRS is fine with. Um, but it, it's probably easier to manage and execute with a DST than it is with a tenant in common structure. And at the end of the, you know, you're going to have a business plan. You're going to invest in it. The, the, the operator is going to run the business. At the end of it, uh, they're going to sell the asset. And um, everybody will get their money back. And they can either cash out or, again, put their money with an exchange accommodator and, and look for another exchange. Um and if you're coming out of a DST, you can still go buy your own duplex. If you're coming out of a DST, you can go into a tenant common structure. If you're coming out of a DST, you can go into another DST. What you can't do is invest in a limited liability company or a limited partnership because then you're selling real estate and buying stock. And that is disallowed as an exchange. And so I would just say that if you're doing it on your own or doing it with friends, be sure who's going to take the midnight feedings, right? And who's going to be who's the chief cook and bottle washer and who's going to be operating it. And you need, you can't have any disagreement because if you get disagreements of who's doing what you'll have headaches. Um, but, uh, and, and then if you're with a spot, if you're going to invest with a sponsor like us, you got to know the sponsor, right? You got to, you got to invest with a sponsor that's got a track record because if you're doing an exchange, you're doing that to protect your capital, right? You're doing it for tax efficiency and to delay the time at which you'll have to pay the capital gains tax and the recapture. So it's it's fundamentally a defensive strategy. So, you know, do your homework and make sure that you're going to do something suited to you. You might be just fine to sell a condo and buy a condo and have it suit and have it suit you just fine. Your strategy and your dance partners, if anyone, uh, have to be suited to you. Um, and then and then you could very likely be just fine. You know, the chief bottle washer hits close to home for me right now with infant twins at home. So I, I'm with you 100 percent. You who, Who's taking care of overnight duties? Uh, I think that's really powerful. Do you typically locate your exchange opportunity? before? I'm, I'm assuming you locate the place for the funds before you decide to sell your asset or maybe you maybe you have or maybe that's evolved over the years. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Um, we we view ourselves as investment managers first and an exchange ideologist second. Um, and whenever we sell, we're selling because we think it's indicated by, by the stage of the investment and the anticipated yield. Um, and we, we have confidence um, that we're going to, um, that we're going to find an exchange. We've never blown an exchange. We have probably 200 partnerships um, that we're responsible for inside the walls of the organization. And we've never stranded one. Um, you know, we sold it and then we couldn't find something to exchange into. I mean, yeah, there are some, there are some sleepless nights, right? Where it's like, where will you, we still haven't found something. Um, but every time we've needed an exchange, we found one. We've never stranded an exchange. Um, and, and concurrently, um, I'd like to say over the last 20 years, but it's probably more like the last 15 years. Um, we've only uh, had a period of time in which we didn't have something in contract to buy one time. And that was for about a week. I mean, we are constantly in the market. Um, we stay in close touch with our investors. So we know what our ability is to raise capital. Uh, we wear out the markets. Our, our transactions team used to be one person and, and now it's eight, right? And we are just, we are constantly going over assets. 
Um, and, and I'd like to say that the likelihood that we don't already have something in contract is low. Um, we're also very trans transparent department to a department. The equity and the investor relations team knows what's going on um, with the acquisitions team at all times and vice versa. Uh, we're, in con we're in frequent contact with institutional JV partners. We're in contact with family offices. And so uh, between the two, by knowing what's on the market, right, and, and wearing it out on the relationship side and really, um, really burning the shoe leather to go out and see assets, um, knowing what we can get, and at the same time, knowing what we need um, in terms of, of replacing, uh, replacing ownership, right, selling a property and then, and then reacquiring. I guess they call it the relinquished property and the replacement property. Mm -hmm. um, is critically important, but we've never, we've never blown one of our exchanges. Mark, this is such a treat to have this conversation with you because obviously you're the real deal and your passion for the industry is just palpable. And it really is just, it's just fun to be a part of this with you. So thank you again, but talk to me about your relationship with risk, because obviously that's a key component towards understanding how you're getting to the other side in terms of creating and generating yield, generating value. How do you evaluate risk when you're looking at a deal? Give me a sense of your process. Well, so there are a few ways, you know, there are a few ways that you could have headaches, right? That you could have risk or damage or loss. Um, certainly, you have to be very appreciative of the apartment business, right? The apartment business is what some people call a heads on beds business. It's about getting people in your apartment and giving them enough so that they feel they're getting a good value, they're getting a good shake and want to stay, right? So you can't kid yourself about your, your leasing strategy. Right. So you have to be you have to be mindful about your leasing strategy. You also have to be appreciative of the real cost of operating the asset. Uh, a broker pro forma um, out when any of our performers are going to differ from a broker pro forma because we're going to run them through the lens of what our experience and, op and, and current operations in given markets, what it really costs to hire a landscaper, you know, what it really costs to replace a roof, what it really costs in terms of payroll. Um, to, to pay your staff well, right? And so you got to be you got to be eyes wide open about about costs. Um, and then there's then there's casualty risk, right? Um, both liability and property risk. And you got to be you got to be mindful about that. You got to um, uh, you got to craft your your insurance platform um, in a way that's adequately protected. And I, I think we do a really good job of that. And so lastly, you know, it's about it's about acquisitions and financing. Um, you can, it's easy to overpay. There's, there's no limit to the amount of money you could spend. You can throw as much money around as you want, but you have to be mindful that you, you have an objective. The objective is to, to provide a, a threshold level of return, both in terms of cash flow and prospective growth. And so, you know, we're fixed rate borrowers. Um, and there've been times where we've been on the wrong side of that. Um, but we committed hard to a, fi a fixed rate ideology, probably in 2003. Uh, and haven't looked back. Uh, you know, it's I, I would much rather uh, explain to somebody why the cash flow is getting tight uh, because operations have sagged as they did in 2008, 9, 10. Um, and interest rates, fixed interest, if you have a fixed rate loan, that interest rate is not going to go down. So I would much rather explain that to somebody than have to explain to somebody why uh, my variable rate loan has spiked and we're having trouble making the payments. So, you know, you, you choose your exposure. Uh, as I say, we're fixed rate borrowers. Um, you have to be your own biggest critic. 
um, when you're with your underwriting, you can't kid yourself. The, the, the operating life of the asset will tell you what it's really going to cost. And in the meantime, you're doing your best to factor that. Uh, but I just think it has to be an eyes wide open thing. Um, you know, I used to, I used to like to say that, that buying good real estate was really about two things. Do I like it? Do I like the real estate? You know, does it, even if it's worn out and run down, are we going to be able to do something to make it really good? Right. Is it in a good location? Is it, is it, is it going to have traffic, right? Are people going to want to live there? Is some future buyer going to want to buy it from us? Are investors going to want to invest in it with us? And so I, I always thought the first, the first question was, do I like it? I still do. Um, the second one is, will it pay? You know, is it, is the, you know, dispassionately, will the operation of the asset pay enough um, to reward the investors? Um, you know, we're our own biggest investor um, taken as a group. We have, um, we have probably between our staff and executives of, on the other teams, we probably have 70 people um, and probably 40 of those people are invested in our deals and our families are invested in the deals. So taken as a group, we're our own number one investor, but we still know that we're, that we're ultimately um, the, the investor community that's not us is the master that we have to serve. We have to make them happy. And if we make them happy, then we get to invest and we get to keep doing this. Um, but subsequently, I also learned that it's, you know, you got to ask yourself, how do I get hurt? Um, you know, in 2008, uh, um, a lot of jobs were lost nationwide. We had places, we, had, we were in markets where unemployment hit 14%. Um, and you got to, you really got to ask yourself how it's going to go if, if things turn against you, right? If expenses go up, if occupancy comes down. Uh, we answered the occupancy problem by simply meeting the market. Uh, we took good care of the real estate. People stayed. You know, we didn't push their rents. People stayed. And because they stayed, we didn't have turnover costs. We weren't replacing carpets. We weren't painting. We didn't have vacancy. People stayed. Uh, and I think I think in some, I think at the low point of the Great Recession, our portfolio occupancy was probably 93%. We had some places that were worse. And we had some places that we had to pump money into. Um, but, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't have, we didn't have, we didn't have extreme headaches, um, because of that. And we just met the market and wrote it out and the market came back. Talk to me about how you're seeing the current market cycle or, or the current landscape, because, you know, in many regards, we're in somewhat uncharted territory. Obviously, we've got a lot of different set of circumstances that are all coming together, maybe crosswinds in different directions. I'd love to hear your evaluation. I'd, love to, I'd also love to hear what you're seeing in terms of pitfalls or concerns in the environment, as well as opportunities or, you know, maybe some hidden opportunities that you're seeing yourself. Well, um, it's a good time to be a seller. Right. And we don't we don't think twice when we think it's time um, to sell and there's a reward um, on the board um, that we can get that, that meets or exceeds. Um, in some cases, maybe even comes in a little bit short, but we can just we can just see it's time to sell. We sell. And I would much rather sell into strength. Um, you know, a lot of people get more attached to their assets when it's really strong. We tend to be dispassionate. And, you know, we have a business plan. We have a pro forma. We run the business plan. Um, and when there's a when there's a W on the board, we don't put a fifth quarter on the clock, right? You know, if it's the NBA Finals and we won Game Seven, you don't put a quarter five on the clock just because it's going to be fun. When you can when you can harvest that W, you harvest it, right? And so it's a great time to be a seller. It's a hard time to be a buyer, right? I mean, those two things are probably gonna you know they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna straddle, right? They're gonna they're gonna swing, but it's it's gonna swing between the two. Um, 
So it's really hard to be a buyer right now. Prices are really high. Um, you know, when you have when you have an asset that's uh, uh, worth ten bucks and it has income of a dollar, that's ten percent. Um, but if the value of that asset, because of demand, goes up to twenty dollars, you're still only going to have that one dollar of return. And so now your return is five percent. So as prices go up, returns get challenged, um, and it's a hard market to find yield in right now. But we 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 benefit from being in 27 markets, um, from having a, a, a good footplate, from having management spread out across the footplate, from having our acquisition team across the footplate. And we just, we flail at it, right? We probably, we probably take three to 4,000 submissions a year. We'll underwrite 250. We'll put out 50 offers. In an ordinary year, we're going to get 15 properties, right? So we wear it out. It's, it's a hard market to be a buyer in right now because there's so much capital. However, with inflation and rising interest rates, there is starting to be a little bit of retrenchment at the top. Um, it's not quite as competitive. You know, they're not, brokers are not doing quite as many showings. They're not doing, they're not getting quite as many offers. There'll be fewer people in best and final. Um, so it's, it's becoming slightly friendlier uh, uh, on the acquisition side, but acquisitions are further challenged by by rising interest rates, which is what's giving a lot of people pause. Um, when interest rates were low and we were seeing year-on-year -year gains on what we call trade-outs of 10% or 20% or 35%, the market, I, I believe the market got ahead of itself. Um, you know, you're not going to see those kind of trade-outs year-on-year over a five-year period. And a trade-out is when you rent an apartment for a thousand bucks, um, and someone has been there and enjoyed the ride, but they're ready to move on to the next thing. And you're going to come in and freshen up the apartment and you can rent it for 1100 bucks. That's a 10% gain on your trade-out. If you can rent it for 1300 bucks, that's a, that's a three, that's a 30% trade-out. And I do think that household formation is on our side and will be on our side for a while. The, the latent amount, the latent potential for household formation, I think is much stronger, um, than the wave of deliveries that's coming. So household formation will be on our side. Um, rents are not gonna have the same kind of growth over the next two years um, that, that they've had over the last two years, right? Over the last two years, people, first people got paralyzed uh, and hunkered down, and then eventually people started moving, right? And so people are on the move, and that's also what's driving, what's driving rents up. Um, but there's a, there's a little bit of an operating challenge um, because, um, Pricing expectations have gone further um, than really true year-on-year -year NOI movement. Uh, and so I'd, I'd say between rising interest rates, um, an ocean of capital chasing assets, um, and compressed returns, um, those are probably the biggest uh, headwinds that we see right now. Uh, debt is still available. Lenders have retrenched. Um, you know, you may not get the same leverage that you sought. Um, you're probably going to pay a higher interest rate than you sought. Um, but uh, uh, the 10-year bond is, which is at about 275. 10-year bond sets, tends to be the instrument that sets um, uh, interest rates, long-term borrowing rates. And then you have what's called a spread over that. And that's, that's, really the, that's really the money that the lender wants to make. And so spreads have actually tightened up a little bit, um, which is a good thing. Um, but borrowing proceeds, interest rates, and pricing um, are probably the three biggest challenges right now. 
Do you anticipate any market correction in the near future? I mean, it seems like we're overdue, right? It's been 14 <laughs> years. Uh, what are your thoughts there in terms of any correction on the horizon? I think it'll be more of a pause, more of a deceleration. Uh, it might plateau. Uh, we could we could be we could see things plateau. Uh, I do think that we'll see um, asset pricing uh, plateau um, because the the number of um, buyers in the market seems to have tapered off uh, a little bit. But I think the household formation numbers are still really strong and are going to remain strong for a while. I think uh, unemployment is very low, and I you know two years ago. Um, we saw a piece of research that said that the number of 18 to 24 year olds living with mom and dad was at an all time high. It was like 52 percent. Um, well, if you asked all of those 18 to 34 year olds, how many of them intended to still be living with mom and dad five years later? I think most of them would probably say, no, thanks. I want my own place. So, I, you know, as long as we're as long as people are getting back to work, as long as wages are rising, uh, as long as unemployment. Um, is low. Uh, and as long as you have a lot of latent potential for household formation, I think the fundamentals of the business are going to be strong. Lenders are being smart. Um, they're being they're being more conservative than they might have been 13, 14, 15 years ago. Uh, and I don't foresee uh, a correction such that that asset pricing would um, would change dramatically. Um, and I don't see you know, I think the ideology, you know, the, for, the foreclosure, the lender's foreclosure ideology, I don't want to say it's a thing of the past. I mean, we see things every once in a great while that are either a foreclosure or something's in a receivership. Um, but lenders, lenders have become more patient. Um, and the government, you know, uh, coming out of uh, the Great Recession, the last five years, we haven't really seen a lot of foreclosure activity. So I, I don't see, um, I see some of the heat coming off the market for sure. Uh, and I don't know that that's such a bad thing, but I think I think housing deliveries are going to are going to be uh, insufficient to meet housing demand. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's definitely music to the ears of individuals who are looking to place capital, looking to grow their portfolio. You know, let's let's take a little heat off this market. I think that is music to many of our ears. So, Mark, man, I could go on and on with you. I could go well, on for days. Let's do it, let's so do it another time. <laughs> Let's do it another time. I think we really should, because this has been extremely illuminating. And I feel like we've scratched the surface on your wisdom just barely. And man, your story has been amazing. Your story has been remarkable and one that we can all point to and, and have a reference point towards to say, you know what, there is unlimited possibilities in this business. And, and I just really, really appreciate you. Mark, before I let you go, I want to transition to the rapid fire section of the podcast. It's called the rare air questionnaire. I mean, what you've been able to do is rare. It's uncommon. So I've got a few questions for you. If you don't mind, play a little game with me. Uh, if you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books you've read over the past few years, what would those be and why? Um, you know, I think the, the three books that I would put at the top of a must read list, you know, that should be basically part of anybody's literary civics, civics course um, would be The Boys in the Boat, um, which people may know that book. Um, there's another book that's probably not as widely known um, called Dispatches. Um, and then I, the last one would be A River Runs Through It. And so The Boys in the Boat is a, is a history or maybe it's maybe it's a little bit of a biography of a, of a, a rowing team um, in Washington State. Uh, in the um, in the early forties, um, and it it really it kind of tells the power of for one thing it's just a great story and it's extremely well written, but it tells the power of people giving themselves over, committing really hard, being in it, um, enduring, 
uh, trusting their teammates and and grinding and and getting there. Right. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody. So I'm not I'm not going to give that much too much more than that. But it's, it's a great book. Um, I'd probably put that in the number two position. Uh, Dispatches is a book uh, of journalism. Uh, it's written by a fellow named Michael Herr, H-E-R-R, who was a, a, a war correspondent during the Vietnam War. And it's I suppose ultimately, you know, you might also say it's a memoir um, of his experience on the front lines of Vietnam. Um, but it's it's really saturated. Um, it's very vivid. It's not it's not bloated or or, you know, it doesn't have false literary aspirations or one thing or another, just truth telling. Um, but it's done so well um, that I, quite frankly, I think it's, you know, if I was going to say there's one book that everybody should read, I would say read Dispatches. You know, it's a, a guy who lands in. The, I don't know if I can swear on your um, on your podcast. They, Be yourself, you know, Vietnam, Mark. they used to call it the shit. Right. <laughs> and we're going out into the shit. Right. And so he lands in the shit um, as a correspondent. And he's just there to be a truth teller. Um, and what he saw and, and he was there during the Tet Offensive. I mean, he ultimately had to he, he ultimately had to accept that somebody's going to put a rifle in his hand and say, you need to be more than a storyteller. Now, you need to help us defend this position. Uh, but it's a great book. And then the River Runs Through It is a, is a novel. It's the it's the only novel that was ever written by a fellow named Norman McLean, who is a Shakespeare uh, professor at the University of Chicago. And it recalls it's, it's written as a novel, but it's probably just as accurate as a biography or as a memoir. And it recalls his years of growing up in Montana in a Presbyterian family uh, with two boys. And, you know, the boys were maybe not quite Cain and Abel and maybe not Romulus and Remus, but each one of them marched to to a different drum. Um, and it really tells, you know, the, the story of the beauty of, of being in a place and being in a family and dealing with with hardships that are created just by the differences between people. Um, and it's just so well written. Um, uh, it's my favorite novel. So I, I would give you those three as a good place to start. You know what? No one ever has ever shared those three books with us here on this podcast. So thank you. I'm excited to dive into those myself. We'll put a link in the show notes as to where the listeners can find those books. Um, but you know what it really shows me is that you're a wide learner. Like we kind of we talked about earlier, the open mind, active interest in any topic. It's being willing to learn things outside of real estate, which I'm sure has lend itself well for you as a leader, as a communicator, as someone who is building relationships, evaluating opportunities, evaluating risks. Is there anything that you would add to that, Mark? You know, it's funny. I've um, I've been asked, well, you know, what's I usually get asked, what's your favorite book or what's I think I just get asked, what's your favorite book? And I've never once um, offered up a real estate book. I mean, I'm sure there are good real estate books, um, but I, I just think, you know, the world is so rich that if you if you open yourself up to it and you're really willing to be in the experience, um, there's 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 good things that you can get just about anywhere. Um, you know, and my, and you also have to follow your own, your own interests. And, you know, I've read a few real estate books. I've read marketing books and the like, and then there's definitely uh, some good stuff, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't warm the heart. You know, it doesn't warm the cockles of the heart the same way some of these other books do. So, uh, you know, when I read, I read to either learn or, or I read for enjoyment. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I have plenty of top real estate minds uh, around me and I, you know, I, I kind of hold up, I kind of hold up my end well enough. Yeah, you can um, hold a candle. That's yeah. Yeah, I think just, so. I think yeah. I can hold up my end. But yeah, I just um uh I a business book is I mean, I do read them. I read them every year, but they're going to be they're going to be a little little further down the pile than things I really want to read just for enjoyment. 
I can appreciate that. And there, I think there's a big pattern in that. I've, I've recognized that in many similar type of performers to yourself. So I think there's a big clue there. So thank you for that. What's the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis, Mark? I go into work. Um, I get out of bed every day. I go to work. Um, you know, I call it my wellness center. Uh, I'm sure my wife is happy to have me get out of the house. Uh, you know, during the pandemic, when I was doing it all from home on the phone, on Zoom and the like, I think it I think I kind of I think she got a little tired of that. Um, but this is where I do the, This is where I do the very best of what I can do um, with the people in this shop, with the people I get to work with and people I get to talk to, such as yourself. Um, you know, it, it, it really it really takes care of me. Um, and, you know, if, if you if you open yourself up to that and also take care of those that take care of you. Um, and there are, you know, there are almost a thousand people in this organization who take care of each other. And 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 at the end of the day, they take care of me. Um, you, you're just going to get a lot out of that. But I, I would say I, the thing I do more of than anything else that elevates me every day more than anything else is coming to work. Well, think about those other people as well, because they lift you up. What's the biggest way that you elevate others around you? Same thing with work. Um, you know, I, I, I was born and raised in a good family. We all live in Northern California. We all help each other. Um, there were definitely religious values in the home, but I wouldn't have called it necessarily, certainly no religious ideology. Um, it was more about being uh, humanitarian, you know, just really being involved. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to, Take a phone call, be present for the phone call. If you're going to respond to an email, really be responsive to the email. Um, but I also believe that, you know, my experience has taught me that, that the best help you can give somebody, you know, there's an old adage from a British, uh, excuse me, a Jewish sage named Maimonides. Uh, and the adage is, if you're going to help somebody, don't give a man a fish, teach him how to fish, right? Because if you give him a fish, he'll eat that day. If you can teach him how to fish, they'll, they'll eat every day. And um, I just think helping people be more productive with what they can apply themselves toward and, and get for themselves, right? You really want to help people, of course. But I think providing a great, a great work environment or a great opportunity, a great culture, a great place to be, um, I think those are the best ways to help elevate other people and giving them a fair shake, right? And making sure they know the road ahead, you know, how they can advance. Um, just being really clear and transparent and giving people a fair shake. Mark, you've been incredibly generous with us today. And I feel like you've taught many how to fish and how to fish better uh, in this business. And, and your your passion for the space, man, I just want to acknowledge you. It is so palpable. It's well, so fun. So I mean, you rub off on on all of us. And, and I can tell you that my fever has grown today as a result of spending time with you. Mark, is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation today? Um, just be present, you know, make yourself available to it. Um, I was in a really down, uh, a really challenged economic situation off and on for, um, it lasted ultimately for probably four years in the early 90s, where there were a number of different times where my wife and I didn't know how we were going to pay our bills. Uh, and I got, uh, I got a really, I got maybe the best piece of mentoring than I had ever received. And I don't know that I've received so much, but from a, from a fellow that I hadn't always had a great relationship with, but he's an older guy and he kind of took me under his wing. And uh, he could see that I was just, you know, almost beside myself. He said, what's going on? I said, I really don't know how we're going to get through, right? I don't know where the next opportunities are going to come from. I, I, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. And he said, 
he said, I'm going to tell you how you're doing. You're going to do it. You're going to go to the office. You're going to do. And I was probably, let's see, I was probably in my early 30s. Um, you're going to go to the office each day. You're going to do the work you can do. Right. You know, whatever, whatever the work is, that's on your desk. It's work that you can really do, you know, sending people information, going out and looking at property, talking to people. You're going to you're going to do that work. You're going to do the work that you can do every day. At the end of the day, you're going to turn the light off. You're going to turn the computer off. You're going to go home. You're going to forget about it. Right. You're going to give yourself a night off. And the next morning, you're going to get up and do the same thing. And you're going to put your head down and you're going to grind through it. And lo and behold, it worked. Um, you know, and I quite frankly, I don't know where I would have been if I hadn't gotten that advice from that unlikely source um, at that time. Um, but, you know, the, the next day is always a new day. And um, and even if it's going to be a bad day, that's OK. Um, you just go through it. Right. And address it honestly, you know, address it on its on its on its own truth, accept the truth of it and and get, you know, deal with the truth of it and turn the light off and go home. And do the next thing the next day, even if you got a challenge, it's, it's waiting for you the next day. And I know that sounds a little homespun um, and all Norman Rockwell and the like, but uh, it's worked for me. I was shared similar advice. I, I went through a, a rough patch, you know, myself for for maybe 18 months or so. And, and I was shared with the wisdom was face another day. Just face another day and just keep getting up, just keep getting after it and things will turn around. And and ultimately they did. And and that is just timeless wisdom. Mark Hamilton, I just want to thank you so much again. The listeners can find you at HamiltonZans.com. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, of course, where the listeners can find that and just link very quickly to learn more about your company. Uh, also LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, but is there anywhere else where the listeners can find you, Mark? They can email me. Um, I'm Mark at HamiltonZans.com. Look at that. The generosity continues. Yep. Mark, until next time, I guarantee we're going to do part two. So thanks again. And I, I hope look forward so. to that. All right, let's do part two before we do part three. I like that. That sounds great. All right, Mark. my friend. I've enjoyed visiting with you. Thank you for having me on the program. Likewise. Talk to you soon, Mark. All right, Tyler. Thank you so much. Elevate Nation, the level of timeless real estate wisdom that we received today from the great Mark Hamilton is unmatched. I'm going to keep this brief. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to do this myself. You've got to re-listen to the show. You have to re-listen to the show. I mean, you talk about someone who has done some incredible, incredible work over the course of the last four plus decades. Unbelievable. The level of wisdom that was shared with us today. And it's all applicable. It's time to re-listen, repetition is the mother of all skill, but it's also time to have a discussion with someone else. Share this episode with a friend and sit down and discuss what was it that surprised you about going from a duplex in the mid 80s to almost 25,000 units across the country? What was it that inspired you? What was it that you really it like turned this light bulb on for you? What was it that you want to share this with your business partner or your spouse or your friend or maybe someone that you've looked at and said, you know what, I'd love to explore a partnership with them. Set up a time to meet with them, have a cup of coffee and discuss what you learned today. Maybe use this as a pre discussion fodder for both of you to listen to and to think about and to jot down some ideas before your conversation, because you know what, we learn so much more when we discuss with other people. I also want to encourage you, of course, to make a commitment to take massive action. What are the top one, two or three distinctions that you took from this discussion today? Put a plan in place to take action on those. Until next time, Elevate Nation, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. 
If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.